Welcome to Conservation Conversations, the podcast where we discuss emerging technologies, global trends, and the future of biodiversity conservation. I'm your host, Sean O'Brien, President and CEO of NatureServe, where we leverage science and technology to protect endangered species and ecosystems around the world. Welcome to Conservation Conversations with me, Sean O'Brien, President and CEO of NatureServe. I'm here today with Peter Chaurier, who is a conservation biologist working to inspire action to turn the tide of the biodiversity crisis, something we've talked about a lot here on Conservation Conversations. Um, Peter is fresh from earning his PhD at the University of Ottawa, where he studied the effects of climate change and habitat loss on bumblebees and butterflies something that everybody loves. Uh, and Peter is also a science communicator and advocate for increasing diversity and inclusion in STEM. And I think everybody knows STEM is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And uh, needless to say, at NatureServe, the nature's tech firm, STEM students are important to us. Um, and currently, Peter works for the Wildlife Conservation Society Canada, where he coordinates the research and outreach for the Canadian Key Biodiversity Area Program. And we've talked about KBAs on this program before, but we'll talk a little bit more about them today because they're a really important conservation tool. And I'm, I'm so excited you're working on those and I'm so excited you're on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Sean. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here and uh, excited to join the illustrious lineup of guests you've had so far. <laughs> awesome, thank you. Um, so. As I said earlier, everybody loves butterflies and honeybees and things like that. Um, I'm a huge fan of honeybees because I love honey. Um, but pollinators in general, it's not just bees and butterflies. Um, and so I thought it would be helpful for you to just sort of talk about like what pollinators are and why they're important to, to humanity and to nature. And then we'll talk a little bit about more what like the threats to them and why, why it's so important to talk about them right now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So pollinators, of course, are, you know, pretty key for, for pollinating plants for ensuring that plants can, can reproduce into the future. Anywhere from 75 to 95% of uh, flowering plants benefit from pollination. Um, and a lot of that is done by, by bees, by butterflies. Uh, but a lot, of it, a lot of it is done by other animals as well. So flies do a huge amount of pollination. Um, they can be annoying when they're flying through our kitchen and bouncing off our windows. But uh, in the wild, they're incredibly important for with other pollinators holding our, our landscapes together. Um, of course, agriculturally as well, honeybees are important, but wild pollinators like bumblebees and other wild bees are, are super critical for that for those agricultural um, produce as well, especially fruits and vegetables. Another kind of pollinator we don't often talk about, but bats as well uh, in kind of southern North America uh, pollinate agave plants in particular. And so depending on your experiences with tequila, whether they're good or bad, um, bats are, are really important pollinators too. Um, I'm glad so you brought up bats because I was going <laughs> to ask about bats and birds as pollinators as well, because obviously insects are critical to pollination, mm -hmm. um, but in certain situations, yeah, of course, mammals and birds, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I worked with a, a group at University College London in the UK um, and uh, Joe Millard, who's a PhD student there, just finishing his PhD, was doing this really cool project of trying to identify all pollinators across the globe um, and doing this really deep literature search and was finding all these weird examples of animals that we would not typically ever associate with being pollinators, but that might be pollinators. So things like giraffes, um, just because of the way they stick their snouts up in those trees and, and wrap their tongues around and bring them down. 
sometimes might do some pollination. So it's right. not clear how important things like those are, but um, a lot of interesting cases of, of animals pollinating that we would never think of. That's quite fascinating to think about um, how they could move their head from tree to tree and spread the pollen and help the plants reproduce. It's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in, in, um, in lots of parts of the world, but in uh, North America in particular, we're having a lot of issues with some of our insect pollinators in particular. And um, I wanted to have you talk a little bit about like, what are those threats and like, how, how bad is it? Yeah. Yeah. Common question uh, that I get, I think. Um, but so this was the focus of my PhD was looking at how um, our pollinators across North America, across Europe are being impacted by things like climate change and land use change um, in particular. Um, and so climate change, we, we know is a, is a big threat. Land use changes as well, especially things like habitat loss and, you know, agricultural intensification, pesticide use and other things um, can also impact pollinators in different, in different ways. Um, and what I found throughout my PhD was that these things are having a big effect and driving a lot of the declines that we see in wild pollinators. Um, so bumblebees in particular across North America and Europe uh, I found we're, we're declining in my research and my colleagues and I found that uh, a big driver of this was uh, climate change and in particular kind of climate chaos. So the way that climate makes extreme events like heat waves and droughts more common and worse over time. Um, these are pushing species beyond their limits. Uh, and in the case of bumblebees and other wild pollinators is probably having a big effect on our landscapes and different agricultural services and stuff. I love this. Um expression climate chaos i don't love it i hate it i wish it wasn't a thing but the description like what it brings to mind of extreme weather events and unpredictability in systems that used to be relatively predictable um mm -hmm. is very evocative um of of the challenge that's facing all kinds of nature um in particular these bumblebees and things like that right now um, yeah. So it's really important work that you're doing. I'm also just curious, like, it's interesting to me how people become inspired by a certain thing. And at some point in your life, you said, man, I love bumblebees or I love butterflies. <laughs> right. And like, was there a person, was there an event that sort of turned you into um, what did, I know there's, you know, people are called birders. And I think there's a word for people who, watch butterflies um what turned you into one yeah yeah that's funny i would love to hear your your thoughts as well on this i know you did a phd as well and some research i'd love to hear what your thoughts are on that yeah um and and incidentally my sister sent me a tweet the other day of like i guess usually we call them leps like lepidoptera butterfly watchers are leps um leps, but they were yes. someone was trying to shorten that to butts they were like oh yeah <laughs> i went to watch butts and i was like butt watchers is not not a great it's not, <laughs> not a great term. <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> but uh just as an aside um for me you know i think it's funny because i i never set out to study bees and butterflies i kind of fell into it and fell in love with them pretty much completely by accident um i spent a summer catching butterflies as a research assistant um and so we were running around you know we do some like sampling uh at different sites around the city um in agricultural fields and in more natural environments and we were just running around with the nets right it was right. like a from like spongebob when he's catching jellyfish um, and uh, it was it was a blast but it opened my eyes to this whole like world of, of butterflies and smaller insects that were around me that like before i started having to look for them and, and actually try to hunt them and, and find them 
um, I never noticed. And all of a sudden I was seeing them everywhere. On the way to school, I would see, you know, three different species of butterfly in the middle of the city. Um, when I went camping, I would see butterflies everywhere. I started to see bees. Um, and I think that's what I really love. You know, bumblebees now I've, I've worked with for the last five years and they're, you know, just they're fuzzy, they're, they're, they're chubby and, and just like incredibly, uh, incredibly fun animals to watch. Um, but they're like emblematic for me of these like small things of beauty that we overlook a lot, but that are absolutely incredible. Um, yeah. They're, they're pretty cute little critters. Definitely. Yeah. Most adorable animals of all time, <laughs> I think for sure. But, but I'd love to know for you, like what was it for you that drew you into your research or, or your kind of the model organism that you worked with? Yeah. So I, uh, when I was growing up, um, my parents were in that category of people who weren't big fans of TV and uh, the thing we were allowed to watch was the National Geographic programs. And back in those days, it was an event when there was a Jacques Cousteau special and mm. Jane Goodall or um, somebody like that was on TV. Um, those were the kinds of things we were allowed to watch. And so I always had this like very romantic notion of people who studied wildlife and animals and um it just sort of stuck with me from when the time I was very, very small. And when I went to college, I sort of thought, oh, I should see what else is out there, even though I knew that I was going to study environmental science. And um, so I did a couple of other things along the way and drifted right back into uh, environmental science. But I also grew up outside of Washington, D.C. And so you're sort of inculcated in the sort of politics of life and your people are talking about politics a lot. And uh, I realized that what I wanted to be able to do was to be part of the sort of solution from a more policy and uh, politics perspective. And so mm -hmm. I wanted to get the credentials to be able to be effective in that realm. Um, and in D.C., it feels like everybody's a lawyer. And I was like, well, we don't need any more lawyers. What we need is people who understand science talking about conservation yeah. and getting involved. So I went and uh, got a Ph.D., at the University of Virginia, and then um, went up to Princeton and did some postdoc work and worked on some political campaigns uh, to try and sort of learn that side of the of the industry. And um, mm -hmm. now here at NatureServe, um, I can look out my window and I can see Washington, D.C. And uh, we're talking about things like key biodiversity areas and the red list of species, as well as the, the ranking system that we have as tools for helping to promote conservation. And um, it's it's really exciting. And we get to talk to uh, decision makers uh, quite frequently about, you know, the importance of conservation and thinking about the climate emergency and the sixth extinction. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know that there was one particular person, but certainly um, uh, National Geographic and those nature nature specials back in the early, in the 70s get credit for, for me being here today. Yeah. Well, shout out them. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, since we talked about um, like, how do we use the things that we're passionate about, like butterflies and bumblebees to promote conservation? Um, can you tell us like, tell us what a key biodiversity area is and why, why we should be thinking about them? Yeah, definitely. Um, so the key biodiversity areas are the, the KBAs, um, which is like, I think is kind of a catchy acronym, which is nice. Um, but um, there are these essentially just important and really special natural places. Um, there are a lot of different ways that we've used to evaluate those in the past. And so what's cool about the KBAs is that 
it's like an international standard. Um, and so these places, when we identify them across countries and across the globe are, um, you know, in a scientifically and, and quantitative way, um, they meet the threshold to be these special places. But at the end of the day, they're just really cool areas, whether it's a, a city park that has, you know, an endemic plant inside of it, or whether it's a, a landscape in northern Canada that where, you know, thousands and millions of birds might congregate from, from dozens of different species. Um, at the end of the day, they're just really cool areas. Um, and what I love about them is that they can be, it's not just the charismatic species that are that KBAs are about. It's not just the characteristic landscapes um, that KBAs are about. It can really be, you know, spiders, like small hunting spiders that might trigger these KBAs. Um, it could be dragonflies in a marsh that, you know, they're found nowhere else in the world, but they're these brilliant emerald um you know, hunters that zip across a wetland, um, that could be something that, that creates a KBA. Um, and it can be, you know, right next door. A lot of places I think that people have, have walked by, have visited uh, or, or driven by, you know, could be KBAs. And so I love the idea of identifying these places and, and have, making it clear to people that these special places are, are everywhere across Canada um, and are worth protecting and worth like, relating with. Well, Canada's a Canada's a, a bit of a leader in defining the KBAs within within the country, which is really exciting. And as you said, it's this international standard so that it's replicable. It's not just somebody saying, oh, wow, that's a great area. It's mm -hmm. documentable and repeatable so that uh, decision makers can know that they're when they talk about a KBA, it, it means something uh, to, yeah. to nature, yeah. to the conservation, which is great. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm I'm super excited that you're working on KBAs with WCS Canada. That's that's fantastic. Uh, but you have other things that you're involved in in the science world. Uh, you work in community or citizen science, and you're also uh, really interested in the important issue of diversity and equity. And in this field, um, we don't see a lot of um, people of color in the in the conservation field in the United States and Canada anyway. Um, mm -hmm. and so I'm curious, like what's, what's your experience with that and what do you think we can do? Like, how can we increase, uh, diversity in this field? Yeah. Uh, good question. And but, of course, ironically, we're always talking about biodiversity, which is a totally different kind of diversity. Yeah. That was, I think the most striking thing that I remember from the first conference I went to, um, which was, I think actually a nature serve the biodiversity without boundaries conference oh, um, awesome. in, in Ottawa, Canada. Um, but I remember going to it and it's about biodiversity. It's about, you know, valuing life and differences. Um, and it was the most, like every conference I've been to, to be fair, like such a, a homogeneous crowd. It's full of, you know, older, older white males, mostly. Um, I think there was a, a great representation of women there, but um, in general, these, you know, the field is, is very uh, non-diverse. Um, and that's something that really, stuck with me. I love it. I love the people here that I work with um, and that I get to, to collaborate with across the country in the field. Um, but it's always, it was always really striking for me as I moved through my education from high school to undergrad to graduate school, seeing less and less people of color, less and less Black people um, in the courses and, and in my surroundings around me. Um, and this is something that, you know, as we're realizing now, systems are, are forcing people of color and Black people out of these fields. So I think increasing that inclusion and, and equity of these systems is, is just really critical because um, we need these perspectives to, to make better solutions. Yes. Um, I, I'm glad you just mentioned the perspectives because, again, sort of drawing the analogy to biodiversity, 
we talk about mm-hmm. the importance of biodiversity for the integrity of the system and how things are interlinked. And it's the same with humans and problem solving. The more perspectives yeah. and different ideas we bring to the prob- to the table, the more creative solutions we're going to come up with. And so mm-hmm. having a diversity of people and experiences and backgrounds at the conservation table is really important. And um, we want to want to do what we can to help with that. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, really critical. Um, and it's awesome seeing uh, organizations like WCS uh, Canada, Wildlife Conservation Society Canada, and NatureServe start to, to really tackle these things in, internally with different diversity and uh, inclusion and equity committees. And um, that really is, is, is really great to see for, for all those reasons that we just mentioned. Um, yeah. Are you able to like, go to high schools or college fairs or anything like that and talk about the work that you do and how fun and exciting and inspiring it is. And, Oh, guess what? You know, there are jobs in this field. Yeah. 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 That's something I really enjoy. Um, over the last year and a bit, uh, I've done, I've done quite a lot of it. Um, it's something I find really difficult to say no to because I know how much it means. I remember when I was a kid, I loved nature, but when I applied for university, I applied to be a medical doctor because I didn't know for a pre-med program because I didn't know you could work in environmental sciences. I didn't know you could work right. in biology or conservation. Um, so it's, it's so important to, to talk about what we do, and, um, not just on the conservation side of things to inspire people to action, but also to like, you know, get people out here um, mm-hmm. that don't know this is a, a viable opportunity. Is it something you do as well that you still, even at this, uh, you know, I'm sure you're, you have a million and one things going on. Do you still make time for that? Yeah, I um, I am sitting where I am because of an informational interview that I did with somebody and somebody mm. I, I reached out to a friend and they connected me to a friend. And literally six steps later, the guy is sitting in his office. He's like, I don't know why you're talking to me. You need to go back to Princeton and talk to your neighbor, Rush Holt. And he's running for Congress and he's a scientist. And so whenever I get contacted by um, students or people who are interested in this field and learning more about it and jobs in it. I'm always more than happy to talk about it and sort of help people and reassure people that you can have a career in the nonprofit sector, um, that it is a viable, mm-hmm. a viable opportunity. And, you know, we have uh, one of the things that I often laugh about here is, um, you know, we employ a lot of people who have college majors that probably when they said to their parents, yeah, I'm going to be a taxonomist or I'm going to be a botanist. Their parents are like, what? Like, and so you're going to work in a restaurant, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and it's so great because in the nature serve network and at, um, your organization and at so many other organizations, there are an amazing opportunities to make a big difference in the world by studying those fields. Because if, if you don't know what it is and you don't know where it is, then you can't protect it. And so having people who have those skills is absolutely critical to addressing the sixth extinction and the climate emergency and all of these things. So, yeah. Love that. Yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about the community science notion um, and the difference between community science and citizen science. And if there is a difference or if it's a um, semantics, I guess, because um, mm. I know you're involved in that. You've talked about, um, the butterfly version of eBird as a citizen science project or community science project. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I, I, I really enjoy. That was the first 
um, community science or citizen science. I use those terms interchangeably. Um, I think they're, there's a difference in types of, of community science programs from things like eBird and iNaturalist to more involved, like community driven research. Um, but I, I use those terms of, of citizen science and community science pretty interchangeably. Um, but yeah, eButterfly was, was one of the first ones that I participated in. I had is just such a great opportunity, I think, to learn about species around you and to give you a reason to go outside. It's a, it's hard sometimes to find, you know, 30 minutes to go outside after work, but, if you're thinking like, oh, I need to like pump up my numbers and, and, you know, see if I can see another butterfly species today, then, you know, you have one more reason to, to step outside like that. Um, and in terms of getting people involved, you know, iNaturalist, I think is, is probably my favorite community science program because it can, you know, they're with their um, AI identification, you know, it gives you a good idea of what you might be looking at. Um, it's amazing. And what it's, they do. it's absolutely, it's mind blowing. Yeah. And it, it, you know, I've showed it to so many people who, who like nature, who like being outside, but were never really like, you know, knowing what types of, of birds they were seeing or plants they were seeing. And they just get, you know, mind blown. All of a sudden they're spending so much more time outdoors. They're, they're mm -hmm. relating to nature so much more. And I think getting so much more engaged in, in the wild because of apps like this, where you can, you can learn so much easier um, about what's around you. Yeah. It's, it's amazing tool and the ability you see something beautiful in nature and you're like, Oh, wow, that's really pretty. But then if you can put a name to it, all of a sudden you remember it and then you look for it again because you're like, Oh, that's that butterfly that I saw before. And I think those sorts of the ability to, to do that sort of feeds into a, a, some sort of natural human compulsion that we have for keeping track of things like that and, and making lists and, uh, it probably goes back to when we were hunter gatherers and needed to keep track of what was safe to eat and not safe to eat. Yeah. And apps like that and smartphone pictures are, are so much better than cave drawings, I guess. Of, uh, <laughs> of what we're seeing. Absolutely. Well, so you're, you just finished your PhD. You got your, your uh, first job in the conservation field officially, right? Yeah. What do you, what do you want to be in 10 years? And what do you, in, in 50 years, when you look back, what do you want to be able to say? This is what I, this is what I did. This is what I achieved. It's a, it's, it's a lot to ask. It's a, it's a lot to ask. Yeah. Uh, and I guess full disclosure, I'm not completely done my PhD yet. I still have a couple more steps to go, but, but I think, you know, I think one of the things I'm really excited to do um, is not to be a conservation biologist anymore. Um, I really, I like what I do. I feel like it's super important. I feel like I need to do it, but it's not what I want to do. Um, it's not, I don't wake up wanting to have to save species. I'd much prefer to be in a place where, where we, we've fixed the biodiversity crisis. We've fixed, you know, we've set in place the solutions um, to live sustainably with nature and, and, and kind of mitigate as much as possible the effects of climate change that, are, um, that have been set in motion already. Um, so that's my goal is to, to work myself out of a job um, and, and get to a point where you know, we can just study species for the love of it and, and not feel guilty at all that they might not be there in 10 years or in 20 years. Um, yeah. I love what I do now. I really care about it, but I don't want to do it for the rest of my life. I do. So you would have been very inspired. I just came back from the IUCN World Conservation Congress. So the International mm -hmm. Union for the Conservation of Nature had their quadrennial big meeting. And there was a lot of talk about KBAs and using KBAs to conserve nature and sort of 
getting policymakers to recognize the value of KBAs and importance of climate change and many other tools related to conservation um, to try and reverse the trend so that we can recover and get to that place that you're talking about. And uh, it is easy in our field to watch the news and be like, there's another superstorm. There's another wildfire. They're having another drought. You know, it's it's doing this weird climate chaos thing in another place, and uh, get a little bit discouraged. Um, but like listening to you and your optimism, like I'm going to work myself out of a job, is it's so great, and it's so important to have people with that sort of can-do attitude working on this. So. I'm I'm so glad that you're you're in the community and that you're you're working you're working towards working yourself out of a job because that means I'll be out of a job too. So you and I can go catch butterflies and describe them together. Yeah, no, I look forward to that. I really do. Yeah. What is it? What is it that keeps you or has kept you motivated this whole, you know, through your whole career? Because it can't have been easy, um, you know, to date, um, seeing everything that's gone by. So what is it that that gets you out of bed into and into the office doing this. And so I think that the challenge that we're facing in the globe with the the sixth extinction, there's so many different ways to look at it. It's a it's a it's an ecosystem services, nature's contributions to humans, it's the human health with zoonotic diseases, but there's also sort of an aesthetic argument about just sort of the beauty of what evolution has created. And then there's this moral component to it where do we really have the right to cause something to go extinct? And so I think about biodiversity on all of those levels. And um, I sort of feel like we have this responsibility, you know, we have the responsibility to leave it better than we found it. And so far in my lifetime, not really hitting that one out of the park. Um, So I'm hoping that you know, by the, in the second half of my life, um, we're able to, to bend the curve and turn things around so that future generations, you know, my kids, your kids, our grandkids have, um, beautiful places and functional ecosystems. Um, but the thing that really like makes it work for me, um, is people like you, because I, um, I have sort of worked myself out of the job of being a a strict scientist. And now I help run an organization so that scientists like you and the scientists on my staff can do the work of getting the research and getting the information so that we can conserve things. And so my daily motivation is to empower conservation professionals to be able to do their work without having to worry about like the management and fundraising and spreadsheets about um, income and expenses and things like that. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's people like you who inspire me to get up every day and come to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's, I love how it's, it's this big circle because you're inspired by, by the younger generation. I find myself incredibly inspired by, by you, you know, work you're so hard to, to set up these systems and, and make this possible. So it's this huge circle of, uh, of inspiration that I hope never stops until we, until we end up, you know, chasing butterflies in a, in a better world. <laughs> That'll be awesome. Yes. It's a, a, a awesome mutual admiration society. <laughs> so, well, Peter, uh, do you have any other uh, thoughts for, for our listeners before we wrap things up? <laughs> Um, man, I guess just, uh, 
I hope everybody gets outside today. Uh, you know, it's, it's fall coming around. Um, beautiful time to see to see birds, catch birds migrating through, uh, catch some of the insects before they before they head away for the winter. So, uh, yeah, I guess if I had one one final word to say, it would just be um, go outside, try to find a key biodiversity area near you or, or any important place um, near you that, that, that you think is special. Awesome. Thank you, Peter Chaurier. That was really great. And you're right. People go outside and enjoy nature because <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Uh, yeah. So this has been Conservation Conversations, and I appreciate you being here with us today and look forward to following your career. And we'll be back uh, next month with uh, another guest, and we'll be talking about other issues related to conserving nature. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.